Hello everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of the TCLF one-on-one -on -one series. Through the one-on-one -on -one series, we aim to interact with the best legal professionals in India and abroad. And we're thrilled to have Mr. Abhirup Das Gupta as our guest for the eighth episode. Mr. Abhirup Das Gupta is a partner in the dispute resolution and insolvency and restructuring practices at HSA Advocates. He is a law graduate from University School of Law and Legal Studies, Delhi, and has over 10 years of experience in dispute resolution. He specializes in insolvency and bankruptcy laws, securitization laws, and corporate and banking litigation. In fact, he's one of the earliest practitioners of the insolvency law in India since the enactment of the IVC in 2016, and has argued and appeared for the first ever resolution plan approved in India. He regularly advises all stakeholders involved in insolvency processes at the NCLT, NCLAT, High Courts, and Supreme Court. It's an honor to have you here today, sir. Thank you so much, Tansi, for inviting me. And uh, thanks a lot to the Contemporary Law Forum. It's quite an honor to be part of this. So thanks once again. Yes, thank you so much for taking out the time to talk to us today. And um, now to start with, could you, your, your practice covers dispute resolution in various aspects of this. So could you give us a brief overview of what this entails and how your dispute practice is in a firm setup as opposed to a chamber or a private or independent practice? So I'll uh, just travel back in time. I was uh, pretty lost as a law student. Uh, both my parents were school teachers. My mom was teaching maths and my dad was teaching chemistry. So you can imagine how far removed my family was from this profession. I was uh, lucky enough to start my career at uh, Deer and Deer Associates. To tell you very honestly, when I started off, I didn't even know if I wanted to do litigation. I was completely at sea. But uh, luckily for me, I took a liking to litigation from the very beginning. And with each passing day, I have uh, loved litigation more and more. Uh, back then, there was no IBC. I mostly used to practice in the DRT under the Securitization Act and under the RDDB and FI Act. While I was in Hirandhir, I was uh, plain lucky to have like great mentors. And I can proudly say that all my mentors back there are all pioneers in this field today. So when IBC was introduced in December 2016, to be honest, the future was quite uncertain. We didn't know for sure how our uh, core practice before the DRTs will pan out. But I was lucky to be part of the first insolvency petition filed in India under Section 10 of the IPC. Uh, this was before the NCLT Hyderabad, a case named Synergy's Dure. As you said while introducing me, it also happened to be the first case in India uh, where a resolution plan was sanctioned. More importantly, in fact, uh, most importantly, this was the case which uh, led to the introduction of Section 29A to the IBC, which prevents disqualified promoters for uh, bidding for their own companies, uh, which are undergoing insolvency. After that, I also represented fi the financial creditor in the first resolution plan, which was sanctioned by the principal bench here in Delhi. It was this corporate debtor named uh, Hotel Godavan Private Limited. It was a heavily contested matter and uh, pertaining to this Hotel Godavan, you will find several reported judgments of the NCLT, NCLAT, the High Courts, and even the Supreme Court. All these cases really set the ball rolling and settled a lot of initial uncertainties in the IBC. 
So since I happen to be part of all these cases, it really taught me a lot in this field. All this exposure under the IBC, it helped me make a move to HSA where I am today. So I would consider myself uh, twice lucky as HSA turned out to be a very, very dynamic place to work with uh, not only lots of exposure, but also a lot of freedom in many ways. So I have been looking after the disputes and litigation side of uh, insolvency, bank, uh, banking, finance, restructuring, and all their commercial litigation, basically. As far as the nature of work of a disputes practitioner in a firm is concerned, I believe that it is much wider than the work performed by a contemporary hardcore litigator. So while we are doing everything that a pure litigator does, being part of a firm, like a proper top tier firm, we also uh, end up doing a lot of advisory work. This involves a lot of legal opinions on complex issues where huge companies and uh, conglomerates, they are ready to act on deals worth millions of dollars just on the basis of what comes out of our keyboard. So having said that, one of the most important aspects of being part of a firm is your relation with your team. I mean, uh, as the cliche goes, uh, you're only as good as your team is. So having a solid team is a condition precedent for a successful firm practice. I feel it's quite difficult to survive in a firm without having each other's backs. Another uh, big difference of being a litigator in a firm setup is cross-selling and cross-references. So our firm has about 34 partners. Uh, apart from the work that we generate ourselves, a huge chunk of work comes through cross-selling from other partners. Of course, you have to be trustworthy enough to make a partner send his own client to you. And lastly, being part of a firm, I feel uh, specialization is quite important because of late, personally, I'm observing this uh, tendency that clients have become quite aware and proactive and they will only look out for specialists for spe uh, specific solutions. So this has been a paradigm shift in the last decade, I feel. And people who want to be a part of uh, any firm must be conscious of this fact. Over to you, Tansi. Yeah, so that's quite true. And in fact, you, have, you specialize in the IBC, as you, as you said, as a might have been luck, or it might have been um, just your exposure in the field. But the IBC has been lauded as the most successful uh, resolution and recovery process. So could you tell us about the IBC and how it's different from its preceding acts? Because the Sarfasi Act, for example, was not as successful as IBC has been appreciated to be. So uh, the IBC and its rules and regulations, they govern the provisions pertaining to the reorganization and insolvency resolution of corporate persons and individuals in a time-bound manner. That is what the object and purpose and the, uh, the statement of objects basically says. As per the provisions of the IBC, if a company commits a default of a minimum value of one crore now, then its financial creditor, operational creditor or such company itself may initiate the insol uh, insolvency resolution process. For beginners, a financial creditor is someone who's who has lent money to the corporate debtor. While an operational creditor is someone who has provided goods or, or services to that company. So once an insolvency petition is admitted, the powers of the directors are suspended and a neutral insolvency professional is appointed. Simultaneously, claims are invited from all classes of creditors and a committee of creditors is formed comprising only of the financial creditors who have a pro rata vote on the basis of their outstanding debt. Now, uh, the insolvency professional, the IRP or the RP as the case may be, 
he runs the corporate debtor as a going concern along with the committee of creditors for a period of 180 days this can be extended to 330 days and in some exceptional circumstances to even beyond that period so during this period the uh, rp and the committee of creditors they uh, make an attempt to resolve the insolvency of the corporate debtor by calling for resolution plans from eligible resolution applicants the resolution plan has to provide for dues to each class of creditors and subject to fulfilling all uh, these legal requirements the committee of creditors they vote on the resolution plan if the resolution plan is approved by 66% it has to be sent to the nclt for their approval and if and when it is approved by the nclt uh, it becomes binding on each and every stakeholder but if there is no resolution plan or if the resolution plans which have come in they are not acceptable to the committee of creditors in majority 66% that is the corporate debtor will mandatorily be sent for liquidation so this law is a paradigm shift from the existing laws regarding insolvency and also the laws pertaining to recovery of dues by various stakeholders this is uh, if i can say this is like a one stop shop where every stakeholder of an insolvent party you can imagine they are all taken care of most importantly the erstwhile uh, regime of debtor in possession has now been replaced by the creditor in possession regime so i have said this before also that uh, in the uh, prior to the 90s all courts you can imagine starting from the lowest district courts up to the supreme court including all high courts they were clogged with cases filed by banks and financial institutions for recovery of debts in 93 they realized they thought enough is enough we need a specialized tribunals because they are taking up, taking up all the time of the courts these specialized tribunals were set up which were called the drt in 1993 where there was a quick mechanism for adjudication of the debt after about 10 years in 2002 the government realized that even the uh, drt uh, the rddb and fi act which was uh, enacted in 1993 was not serving its real purpose so they came out with the securitization act the sarpc act in short uh but now uh this ibc will be a complete game changer as i have said that uh, the debtor in possession regime has now been replaced by the creditor in possession regime so under all previous uh, uh regimes all previous acts it was always the debtor the defaulter who continued to remain in possession while the adjudication continued so having said that uh you have asked regarding what has really changed i would also like to bring about or bring forward another hypothetical if you may say uh, way of looking at this hypothetically if there is a company x and that hypothetical company x has three creditors a b and c forget the ibc for a moment under any law if x becomes insolvent or unable to pay its debts then a b a b and c they would get whatever value x is worth in respect to their pro rata share and in respect of uh, the priorities of their debt basically incidentally even under the even after the introduction of the ibc these three creditors that is a b and c will get exactly what x is worth so uh, so uh, for nothing has really changed as far as you know 
as far as the valuation of the company is concerned and as far as how much each stakeholder will get so for really changing the economy or for really improving the current financial state of affairs what is most important is to ensure how to improve the value of x the value of x could be dependent on various factors uh, such as you know the value of the underlying land the real estate the licenses and permits it has the contracts it has entered into uh, entrepreneurship in that company the taxation regime and a host of other things so this hypothetical example uh, is certainly hypercritical but the ipt uh, the ibc does uh, try and fix some of these parameters which i have just said and most importantly the underlying objective of the ibc is to ensure that any insolvent company must continue as a going concern so that is the basic difference uh, that ibc has brought about from the previous uh, legislation over to you tamsi yes that was actually a very helpful comparison with how the ibc it might not have made major changes but i think the change in perspective and having a time bound resolution process has impacted the entire process very very well and um, despite that the ibc continues to be a growing area of law and there have been several changes to the act and in fact before june 2020 it had been amended four times and there were several cases also changing the scope of the ibc so could you give us a brief explanation of what the major changes in the insolvency law have been since it was enacted uh, firstly you will have to understand that the ibc was an experiment to bring up bring about a comprehensive legislation as i said which would uh, deal like which would effectively deal with all aspects of insolvency and liquidation process of companies not only companies but individuals and partnership firms also so being a completely new legislation and considering the value of stakes involved it wasn't really unforeseen that there would be numerous occasions of judicial intervention and legislative amendments in the ibc regime you know uh, to tweak it and to fill the gaps wherever required amazingly the judiciary and the legislature both have been up to task and up to the game and let me tell you no stone has been unturned uh, in this endeavor to uh, being up to speed uh, with the times now i'll turn to some of the major amendments of course for all the amendments uh, we'll possibly require uh, uh, another session and i have uh, seen books uh, running into thousands of pages which are being uh, written only on the amendments so in my opinion the most significant amendment was the introduction of section 29a this was in uh, november 2017 section 29a basically prevents disqualified promoters from bidding for their own companies which are undergoing insolvency earlier uh, a resolution applicant could be any person who submits a resolution plan to the resolution professional and a resolution plan could be a plan proposed by any person for insolvency resolution of the corporate debtor there was no specific criteria or qualification or uh, or even disqualification for that matter so persons who by their own misconduct or fraudulent motives or even bad business decisions have contributed to the default of the corporate debtor they could have regained the control of their company again by bidding with heavy discounts while banks and other financial institutions would have had to take huge haircuts which is public money at the end of the day it's taxpayers money like you and me 
this was highly criticized and this was the basic rationale for the introduction of section 29a so as you must be aware section 29a and a host of other provisions were tested on their uh, constitutional validity by the supreme court in the famous swiss ribbons case i happen to uh, represent one of the petitioners there as well another important change was the supreme court judgment of innovative versus icici so section 7 of the ibc uh, pertaining to triggering insolvency proceedings by financial creditors it uh, didn't exactly provide any mechanism for issuing notice or permitting the corporate debtor to be heard uh because the only threshold which was required was that there should be a default above rupees 1 1 lakh and notwithstanding any dispute which exists between the parties a section 7 was mandatorily required to be admitted but the supreme court stepped in and by this judgment it held that uh, keeping in mind the principles of natural justice it was incumbent or mandatory on the nclt to first issue notice and to first hear the corporate debtor before passing any order another important amendment that i can think of uh, uh, this the first amendment of 2020 which was passed in march amongst other things the threshold for initiating insolvency was increased from 1 lakh to 1 crore also for real estate companies uh, to initiate insolvency on behalf of home buyers you have to now file on behalf of either 100 allottees in number or uh, you have to the petition has to be represented at least uh, by 10% of the allottees of course there was an ordinance on similar lines which is subject matter of challenge before the supreme court that is still pending as on date additionally uh, companies which are undergoing insolvency can now file for insolvency of other companies as well which was not permitted earlier due to certain technicality another important amendment was the insertion uh, of the explanation basically to section 14 of the ibc uh, which basically says uh, that any license permit or registration or clearance or any similar grant which is given by the central government state government uh, local authority or any sectoral uh, you know regulator or any other authority whatsoever it shall not be suspended or terminated on the grounds of insolvency subject to there being no default in payment of the current dues which uh, basically arise uh, which arise for or uh, during the use or continuation during the moratorium period so this is very very important for a successful resolution of the company the rationale behind this is what was happening is that as soon as a company goes into insolvency all the contracts that it had all the licenses that it had all the permits that it had were being arbitrarily cancelled by the government or other regulators so this is really very helpful for successful resolution of the company another very important aspect was the insertion in an introduction of section 32a which provides that the corporate debtor shall not be liable for an offence which is com committed prior to the commencement of cirp Uh, from the date of the from the date that the resolution plan is approved by the ncrp so basically this means that the previous management if they had been liable or if they had been responsible for any offenses the new management will not be responsible
for those offenses and they cannot be tried for those offenses of course this is only applicable where there is a change of management by way of a reservation plan so this section also safeguards the property of the corporate debtor from uh, you know attachment seizure or retention or confiscation so as you may have studied in law school the law is dynamic in nature and keeps uh, evolving let me tell you that's uh, not a cliche and that's 100% true as we are seeing with so many changes and uh, in the times to come uh, i am very sure and i am very hopeful that there are going to be more amendments uh, which will uh, keep this uh, uh, new uh, regime completely up to date and as uh, bob dylan had said times they are changing back to you tansi yes so that's that's quite true uh, times truly are changing especially considering the current circumstances of the pandemic and of the many changes it has brought about and the effects it it's had on the law insolvency law in particular has um, has been changed a lot and has been impacted a lot which is why the ordinance on um, on june 5th was passed this year and could you uh, tell us what the key changes uh, through this ordinance were so uh, in may as uh, part of uh, as you may have heard and read about it as part of the atmanirbhar bharat package the finance minister announced the exemption of all covid 19 related debts from the ambit of default under the ibc and the suspension of initiation of any fresh insolvency proceedings under section 7 9 or 10 of the ibc for a period of up to 1 year however the government did not announce the relevant dates for this initiative back then so this was followed up by reports that on uh, 3rd june the union cabinet had approved the proposal for suspension of sections 7 9 and 10 of the ibc for non performing assets specifically during the covid 19 period starting from 25th of march this was the background uh, in which uh, this amendment finally came about there was a lot of suspense as to what is going to be uh, the fine print actually now let's talk about the uh, the amendment which was finally brought about on the 5th of june the second amendment was introduced of course uh, uh, since the parliament was not in session this was brought about by an ordinance uh, why the parliament is not in session is an altogether different topic let's not go there for now uh, so this amendment simply mentions that for any default which occurred after 25th of march for a period of 6 months will be exempted from the rigors of ibc so as of now if any default occurs between 25th march and 25th september no ibc proceeding can ever be filed with respect to that debt so this period of 6 months is further extendable to up to 1 year they have further clarified uh, specifically that the ordinance would not apply to any defaults before 25th march apart from that uh, in the ibc there is a section uh, a provision section 66 pertaining to fraudulent transactions so if the resolution professional finds out that there has been a there has been fraudulent trading or wrongful trading before the commencement of the insolvency proceedings or even during these uh, proceedings the uh, uh, resolution professional is duty bound to file an application before the nclt for reversal of that transaction but uh, in this amendment they have introduced section sub, uh, 
specific subsection 3 which basically says that uh, no such application can be filed for reversal of these transactions uh, in respect of defaults which are covered under section 10 so basically which have occurred after uh, 25th of march so these are the only changes for now but uh, considering the state of our economy fancy um, personally i feel that many more initiatives will be required from the government to bring things uh, back on track uh, you know otherwise it might be a case of too little too late back to you uh, yes, so in fact, one of the, the major changes you mentioned was the temporary suspension of Section 7, 9, and 10 of the IBC. And while that is an is a extremely welcome uh, relief for corporate debtors, it will simultaneously burden lenders as well. So what do you think the impact of, um, of the suspension will be and the exclusion of COVID-19 related defaults uh, from the definition of default under Section 10A? And how do you, how it's impact businesses? And how do you think other financial institutions like the RBI and SEBI will have to accommodate these concerns? So, uh, as you may be aware, RBI had uh, previously issued guidelines on 12th of February 2018, which made it mandatory for lenders with debts above rupees 2,000 crores to explore a resolution failing which they were mandatorily required to approach the NCLT. Uh, these guidelines were challenged before the Supreme Court by various stakeholders uh, in the famous Dharani Sugar judgment, of which also I was lucky to be part of, which ultimately quashed this circular in April 2019 for being ultraviolet. So this 12th February 2018 circular was quashed in April, 2007, uh, in April 2019. Uh, immediately thereafter, on uh, 7th of June of the same year, 2019, the RBI introduced the Prudential Framework on Resolution of Stressed Assets, uh, which in simple terms provides for a framework for resolution of stressed assets outside the ambit of IBC. So one of the major departures from the previous RBI guidelines was that while the previous RBI guideline made it mandatory for the lender to go to the NCLT, here it is the discretion of that lender. Now, these measures uh, in these guidelines, uh, they, provide, they provide an alternate to lenders to resolve the debts without approaching the NCLT. So after the outbreak of COVID and after declaration of the lockdown, on uh, 17th of April, the RBI introduced certain instructions relating to extension of resolution timelines under the RBI directions such as extending the timelines pertaining to the review period or the residual review period during which all the lenders decide uh, what is the way forward. So uh, the, therefore the RBI directions could have been the most sought after remedy by lenders in case of suspension of section seven, nine and 10 as the case is now. But uh, according to me, there's a slight catch to it. Uh, in the RBI directions, default has been defined as having the same meaning ascribed to it under the IBC. So all COVID related debts might be ex uh, exempted from the purview of such directions because the default under the RBI direction is means the default under the IBC. But by introducing section 10A to the IBC, def default is not really a default if it has occurred during the lockdown. So we don't know if the, uh, there is, I mean, I feel this is uh, an anomaly 
of whether uh, the RBI directions will be applicable during the lockdown, and I think it has to be adequately addressed uh, by the RBI. Having said that, uh, lenders will always have the right to take action under the SARTC Act and under the Recovery of Debts and Bankruptcy Act, as it is now called. Uh, even in the RBI guidelines pertaining to moratorium of uh, repayment of loans, which has been in news uh, quite a lot recently, uh, because of COVID-19, the discretion of granting or not granting the moratorium is completely with the lenders. They can refuse to grant moratorium during this crisis, and they can even declare the accounts as non-performing assets. And they can proceed to exercise whatever rights are available to them under law. So I feel uh, that uh, apart from the clarification to regarding the applicability of the RBI guidelines of 7th of June 2019, I think lenders have adequate safeguards in terms of exercising their uh, rights as are legitimately available to them under law for recovery of their loans. Over to you, Tansi. Yes, sir, that's quite true. In fact, there are alternate ways to restructure loans apart from the IBC, and there definitely will need to be um, some changes brought about to the RBI guidelines and how these uh, this restructuring can take place, and especially in light of the amendment to Section 10A. Um, one more change you mentioned earlier was the fact that the threshold under the IBC has been increased from 1 lakh rupees to 10, 1 crore rupee. And that has impacted the, the um, IBC a lot. In fact, it has impacted MSMEs and other lenders as well. So what is your opinion on this change? I'll... Uh... I'll respond to that uh, in short. So this measure has been brought about the purpose, uh, which is the stated purpose is uh, to safeguard the already ailing businesses. And this might provide uh, some relief to the debtors in these uh, you know, unprecedented times. So as you're aware, this relief would only be limited to debtors with debts of less than rupees one crore. Uh, so essentially, it will be applicable to small-scale defaulters and possibly MSMEs. But if we examine this minutely, it could be a double-edged uh, sword. I'll tell you why. You know, while many people are hailing this uh, decision to prevent smaller companies from going into insolvency, it also simultaneously takes away the rights of these smaller companies where they are creditors instead of being debtors. The IBC, uh, like having uh, practiced this on the ground level and having represented numerous such companies, on the ground level, I know that uh, for a fact that the IBC was an excellent mechanism for smaller players to put pressure on the big fish so that they can, you know, liquidate the dues out of fear of, uh, purely out of the fear of uh, commencement of insolvency. So this move would certainly reduce the workload of the NCLTs but for the reason that I just explained, it might prove to be counterproductive in the long run for smaller players. While I feel uh, these, of course, as we discussed, uh, another issue is, I personally feel that this amendment of uh, changing the threshold from one crore, uh, from one lakh to one crore, is uh, applicable prospectively, meaning only to new cases which are filed after the amendment, this should be applicable, that the debt should be one crore. But uh, I would like to inform uh, you that Delhi, the Delhi High Court is seized of a matter and uh, the order was uh, passed on uh, 23rd of June. 
just like uh, three or four days back, wherein it has taken a prima facie view that it should be applicable also to cases which are pending adjudication. So uh, I think uh, the case is titled Pankaj Agarwal versus Union of India. I think uh, the uh, Union of India has been directed to take instructions regarding the applicability of the circular because the whole purpose is to prevent and protect MSMEs. Uh, however, uh, while an amendment will be only prospectively applicable, the Delhi High Court has taken this prime exercise view that it should be made retrospectively applicable also for cases which are yet to be admitted. So we'll have to wait and watch uh, what uh, view the Delhi High Court finally takes. Over to you, Tansi. Yes, so that's quite true. And from what I gather, there is a need to re-examine how the existing IVC and insolvency procedures can be can accommodate the concerns arising out of COVID-19 and also how to balance the rights of both debtors and lenders. And coming to my last question on the impact of the pandemic on the, on the insolvency procedure, which is that uh, lockdown measures have severely impacted the liquidation value and fair value of stressed assets. So how do you think this will uh, affect the ongoing insolvency res uh, resolution processes as well as fresh applications that will be passed after the moratorium? Uh, that's a very tricky question, uh, Tansi. There's absolutely no denying that the liquidation value and fair value will undergo a huge change on account of the lockdown. But uh, the catch is that the IBC defines these values that is liquidation value and the fair market value on the date of commencement of insolvency and not at the time of submitting a resolution plan. So for existing cases uh, where resolution plans have come in or expected uh, to come in, there's going to be a, there's definitely going to be a problem regarding these values. So uh, the NCLT or NCLAT or the uh, Supreme Court will have to clarify regarding uh, the liquidation value and the fair market value because the liquidation value uh, on the date of commencement will obviously undergo a huge change uh, as on date from the date uh, it was originally calculated. So, but the uh, in either case, the prospective resolution applicant uh, who are planning to submit resolution plans or who've already submitted resolution plans, they will have to reconsider their offers. Like if we think commercially, it doesn't make any commercial sense for uh, the value at which they had given a resolution plan to ascribe the same value today. Whereas think there is like the scenarios absolutely changed. If there is no force measure clause and if they cannot go back on, uh, on they cannot renege on their word, they are in, they're in a huge soup. So in either case, the prospective resolution applicants will have to reconsider uh, their offers and the resolution professional or the committee of creditors may contemplate revaluing the corporate data. But uh, having said that, the Supreme Court uh, in the Maharashtra seamless case has clarified that a resolution plan can be below liquidation value also. So basically the liquidation value or the fair market value is only a benchmark for the lenders to consider the viability and feasibility of a resolution plan. It is not to be shared with the resolution applicant. So in such a scenario, I doubt if it will make uh, too much of a difference. 
Yes, as you highlighted, there definitely are concerns, even though the, the liquidation value is, the, is important at the time of the uh, beginning of the insolvency proceedings, there will be a need to re-examine how COVID-19 and the impact on the value of companies uh, will affect the uh, bidders now. And especially after the fresh applications, once the moratorium is lifted. And um, that was extremely helpful and that was extremely enlightening in terms of how the pandemic has impacted various aspects of the resolution process and the insolvency process. And I, for one, learned a lot about the technical aspects and that was extremely uh, briefly and explained in a very simple manner. So thank you so much for um, this conversation. And thank you so much for taking out the time of your busy schedule to uh, talk to us about all this. Thank you so much, Tansi, for having me here once again. It was quite an honor and I hope uh, this uh, reaches its desired audience and I hope they see the great work that uh, the Contemporary Law Forum is doing. Thanks once again.